0: old-timey, crimey. I'm Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here to tell you of some interesting happenings in the newspapers. Newspapers. The newspapers of old, of course. Of course. (laughs) So before we get to that, uh, get like podcast business out of the way, apologies for no episode last week. We did warn you it might be a little sporadic as I was recovering from surgery. And Amber also... (laughs)
1: Had a surgery in her family. Yep, my little boy had surgery. Did not go as expected, so recovery was a bit longer than anticipated. So it was
0: it was getting a little rough surgery-wise in both households, so we decided to take a week off.
1: A Much needed, so, much needed. Yes, yeah. to
0: recover and breathe and help others recover, etc. And so that's that, and we're going to try to keep uh, bringing you interesting stuff, but you know, just bear with us. I should be backed up to snuff by the end of the year. Hopefully. I have my second surgery in November.
1: And I also have another surgery in my family in November. (laughs) So um, we are going to do our very best to keep giving you fresh material as we are healthy and able enough to do it.
0: Yes, absolutely. But meanwhile, over on the Patreon, we are making sure that we get our old tiny crimeys up there because we love our patrons. And so over there, uh, in the next couple weeks, you're going to be hearing a story about uh, a young woman, a young couple, uh, with a little uh, Lover's Lane type incident that Amber told me about. And uh, I don't want to A plot twist, if you will. I was going to say, I don't want to say that there's a plot twist, but no, go ahead. There's a little <laughs> bit of a plot twist. There's a little bit of a plot twist. And also, I told Amber uh, a big fish story. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because it's just delightful. <laughs> it was. It was
1: very delightful. And that is patreon.com. Old timey, crimey.
0: Yes. The link is in the show notes. $5 a month gets you four bonus episodes. And we need to catch up sometime on the uh, fifth, the, <laughs> the, the monthly bonus episodes. We'll get there. We promise. You'll have a, a deluge at some point.
1: <laughs> yes. Listen, it's been wild.
0: We're doing our best. We're doing our best. So... Five dollars, that is the same price as 1927. You could buy big boys four-pieced vest suits size seven to sixteen. Ooh. That's down from uh, seven dollars and ninety-five cents, regular price. Single and double breasted in new light and dark patterns. Long and short pants or two pairs lined with knickers. Look at this little gangster about to go like oh! make some little tiny moonshine. <laughs>
1: Hate, he's only missing the violin case with the machine gun. Right,
0: right. It's like pinstripe. He's all, he's ready to go. He is snazzy. <laughs> that, is, that cracked me up. So yeah, I think, oh, two little bits. We do have uh, people who gave us their hometowns to look into. And I have found cases in several of them. And uh, so if you want to also do that, we are still accepting hometowns. And you can tell us and we will look into an old-timey murder or crime in your hometown that you probably don't even know about because some of these things, they just get forgotten by history. So you can email those to oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com or toss it up on the Facebook, tweet us, something like that. And also, um, I have a a promise to a listener that we were going to do uh, a murder that the 100-year anniversary was September 14th. Unfortunately, that was only 12 days after my surgery, so the timing didn't really work out, but I wanted to let you know. I'm working on it. I'm reading the book you told me about. I'm taking notes. I'm getting it ready. But I think it's going to be, a. It's, it was always destined to be a big one. It's going to be a two-parter.
1: It's going to be a big one. It's going to be a big one.
0: So, speaking of big ones, no, that doesn't work. Um, Let me tell you about my weekend. <laughs> yeah. um, Amber, would you like to hear about a uh, delightful new wonder drug? always yes new wonder drug that uh, came around in 1900 as a harmless as the headline tells us substitute for morphine said to have been discovered by a berlin doctor kaiser uses it for his periodical earaches the formula as yet secret professor dreiser the well-known berlin authority on the use of opiates has discovered a substance that seems to possess all the soothing principles of morphine while at the same time, as a medicine, it is unaccompanied by the evil consequences that make the drug a curse as well as a boon. The substitute for morphine is called heroin. <laughs> and according to private accounts, Professor Dreiser seems to be willing to give the chemical analysis of the new drug to the world, free, gratis, and for nothing. Well, thank you so much, sir. Thanks for that. What a wonderful thing you did for humanity. However, on that point, nothing has as yet been settled. And it is not impossible, therefore, that heroin, like diphtheria serum, will become a monopoly. The next headline is, does not intoxicate. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. The chief beneficial qualities claimed for heroin are described. It's just so weird to say that. <laughs> are described by Professor Dreiser as follows. Heroin deadens sensibility without causing mental ex- exaltation. In this latter respect, it differs entirely from morphine, which acts first as a stimulant and again puts the patient to sleep. Heroin has no after effects. It leaves no traces behind. The patient with whom experiments were made suffered neither of constipation, thirst, nor dryness of the... something. Uh, For the reasons given, heroin may be used without hesitation by sick people suffering from lung trouble or in cases of bronchitis, violent coughing, or pneumonia. So you got a little bronchitis, here's some heroin. Earache? Heroin. So they go into discussing, well, yeah, the Kaiser uses it for his earaches. Yeah. They go into discussing how another professor, Professor Gerhardt, experimented with heroin on 50 persons, men, women, and children. Oh, my God. The experiments in the Second Berlin University Clinic were made on one dozen human beings and on a great variety and number of animals. Oh, my God. Gerhardt says that heroin cured almost instantly violent fits of coughing. Patients who had become... Hey, maybe you need some. I mean. <laughs> you don't hear it because I, I edit them out, but we have to pause for Amber to cough
1: sometimes. and That's because I smoke a pack a day. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you just need to replace it with heroin. You know, maybe.
0: <laughs> I'm full of good advice. <laughs> Only looking out for your best interests. It is, after all, you know... Unaccompanied by the evil consequences of morphine.
1: I rather enjoy morphine. I've been on morphine before. I liked it, but I was dumb. Like, real (laughs) dumb. And I like being quasi-intelligent. So I'm going to go with no. (laughs)
0: Patients who had become so used to morphine that their doses had to be increased all the time were put to sleep by infinitesimal injections of heroin. And what is more, the sleep seemed to do them good. They breathed deeply and regularly. Only a few old-time opium fiends resisted heroin. But their resistance, says the professor, may have been due to a craze for morphine, which they thought they couldn't do without. Well, let's give them some heroin. Professor Gerhardt further claims to have affected with the aid of heroin very remarkable cures of asthma, attended by cough, wheezing, and constriction of the chest. Uh, Professor Dreiser and the other physicians who have tried the new remedy agree that heroin is as efficient as morphine as a painkiller and sleep bringer. It stops convulsions and brings on perspiration. The next uh, sub-headline is, No Heroin Habit! none at all none at none. all. None. though morphine is not as liable as opium and laudanum to bring on nausea and headaches say the doctors the fact remains that it does bring on these conditions if used habitually after a dose of heroin or even after a succession of heroin injections the patient always awoke with a healthy appetite and a head free of pain this says professor gerhardt i consider one of the greatest boons that can be conferred upon sufferers from certain diseases in which opiates are indispensable while morphine opium and laudanum are and will remain invaluable staples of medicine, it cannot be denied that they have ruined many digestions and brought on much obstinate causativeness aside from many other nev- evils known to all the world. The doctors furthermore dwell on the fact that there is no danger of a heroin habit to spring up in the place of the morphine habit. This because <sighs> heroin produces no agreeable mental sensations. People who must take heroin do no more clamor for it than persons induced by physical conditions to swallow castor oil.
1: So I think this is a a really uh, lovely learning opportunity is the thing about science is that science is always learning. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) And so please take scientific evidence with a grain of salt because they're always learning more. So this is a perfect example of that. Apparently
0: they thought they knew everything about heroin after they invented it. And not so much. I feel so good (laughs) when my ear hurts and I take the heroin. (laughs) I should take it again. So uh, a hopeful sign for the new drug and a guarantee that it will be tested to its utmost limit is the interest the Kaiser takes in it. Nowadays, nothing succeeds in Germany unless it bears the imperial hallmark. It is a well-known fact that Emperor William detests drunkenness in any form, but it is less well-known that several of his most efficient co-workers in different fields were at one time temporarily incapacitated by the morphine habit. German newspapers and politicians have repeatedly asserted that Prince Bismarck, during the last eight to ten months of his official life, was addicted to the morphine habit to such an extent that it was impossible for him to attend to his duties. If only he were on heroin instead. <laughs> but that's pretty much what they said. Uh, another one of Kaiser's lieutenants, however, Governor von Wismann, was repeatedly forced out of the colonial service by the morphine habit. And Wisman was the most efficient colonial officer and only successful one Germany ever had. Jeez. <laughs> now, first of all, to be an efficient German, you are really efficient. <laughs> yeah. But the only successful one they ever had? Okay. They're straight savage. <laughs> but the Kaiser had reasons of his own for being interested in a substitute for the dangerous morphine. His majesty is subject to the most excruciating earaches at regular intervals. When a fit <laughs> Those se- damn earaches! damn erics. When a fit seizes him, morphine alone keeps him from going mad with pain. He is a pretty self filled man, but nevertheless, he has been haunted again and again by the fear that the morphine habit might grow on him. No wonder he congratulated Professor Dreiser upon the invention of heroin and opened the Royal Hospitals to him for experiments. All medical Berlin bespeaks a great future for heroin because it does not affect the nervous system. (laughs) The next uh, headline, experiments in treating hysteria. Well, it will calm you down. The physicians will now experiment with heroin on hysterical persons. Morphine and opium, even very small doses have proved fatal when administered to hysterical young women. That's right, they killed women, treating them for a fake disease. Shocking, shocking. Right? If heroin proves to be an efficient and reliable substitute for these drugs, women the world over have cause to thank Professor Dreiser. No, they're just gonna kill more of them, I guarantee it. (laughs)
1: A woman is speaking her mind. Hysteria! Give her heroin. <laughs> and not only
0: on their account, thousands of children are annually killed by unthinking mothers and negligent nurses by a few drops of paragoric or some other soothing syrup teeming with opiates to check, as they think, diarrhea or to produce sleep. <gasps> heroin seems to be destined to take the place of these dangerous admixtures, and mothers and babies will be gainers. We're going to admit to mothers and the babies. Yeah, newborn won't sleep. Heroin. <laughs> Let's give him <them> heroin. <laughs> the benefits which Professor Dreiser's invention is bound to confer upon humanity by checking and eventually stamping out the morphine habit among all is incalculable. The learned professor of biology in the Johns Hopkins University, Dr. H. Newell Martin, says in one of his recent works, Many a man or woman of highest gifts and noblest character who would loathe the low vice of drunkenness has gone under the insidious maelstrom spread by opium for its victims. With these flaming words, the professor refers to the conditions in the United States. He places morphine in the same category with opium, as indeed it is blah 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 blah. science stuff.
1: Science stuff. Science stuff.
0: (laughs) Professor Martin further says with respect to the opium morphine habit, it may be that it does not do so much harm in the United States as alcoholic drinks, but only because not so many persons have acquired the craving for it. Used constantly... It is certainly fatal, and the habit is perhaps even harder to break, for it may be indulged more secretly, and its effects are not so readily recognized. So you can also see this, this, like, extreme demonization of, like, morphine and stuff. And that's causing them to be like, oh, this new wonder drug, that's the answer. I've got a secret for you. It's not! Yeah. This is not going to
1: go well. It did not go
0: well. (laughs) Nope. All right. Sorry, about that.
1: I should have warned you that was going to be a long one. That's all right. I have a long one for you in rebuttal. Okay. Let's hear it. Literal smiles in death chair, Columbus, Ohio. Literal is this gentleman's last name, which is part of the reason that I uh, was seeking him out. Okay. Well, that's just beautiful. <laughs> Literal was the happiest man I have ever seen die in the electric chair. That statement was made today by Warden Preston E. Thomas of Ohio State Penitentiary here as he commented on last night's electrocution of James E. Literal, 42 year old Athens County miner. Literal died in the electric chair a few minutes after nine o'clock last night for the murder of Harry Green, coal miner of Nelsonville. The slayer was baptized at his own request an hour before he died. Hmm. The immersion was held in the baptismal of the penitentiary chapel at which the Reverend Willis Stump, pastor of the Pentecostal church here, officiated. He was assisted by the Reverend K.E. Wall, Protestant chaplain. Following the baptism, literal spent his last hour on earth in the death cell adjoining the death house, which holds the instrument of death.
0: (laughs) Somebody needs to teach them about
1: repetition, when to use it and when not. I enjoy it. Most of the time was spent in singing hymns. The last song which the group sang at the request of Literal was When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Several prison guards who were stationed near the death cell joined in the singing. The convicted killer's last meal consisted of fish, mashed potatoes, tomato salad, creamed peas, rolls, jelly, coffee, ice cream, and cake. That's a big last meal. Mm-hmm. He probably pooped his pants. <laughs> The meal was prepared by Mrs. Thomas, the warden's wife, in accordance with the custom which she began several years ago, which is actually kind of sweet in a way. Before he was taken to the penitentiary from the impervist death row at City Prison, Literal was visited by his sister, Mrs. Nancy Osman of Nelsonville. Literal, accompanied by the two ministers and followed by two guards, walked into the walked into the death chamber at 9.02. His eyes were filled with tears, but a broad smile lit up his face as he glanced around the room at the prison officials and newspaper men. May I shake hands with these men, he asked the warden. The warden said yes. And literal walked around the entire room and shook everybody's hands, saying God bless you to each and every one. It is the first time in the history of the Ohio Penitentiary that a condemned man has made that unique request. With this unusual ceremony completed, Lyril sat down in the chair and said in a loud, clear voice, "'Bless the Lord, I'm doing it for thee. I know I will see all you gentlemen in heaven.'" As he was being strapped into the chair by guards, he murmured, "'Lord, help us! Lord, help us!' over and over. As the black leather mask was placed over his face, the smile was still on his lips and his eyes were raised upward.'" The current was applied at 9.06, and four minutes later, the slayer of Harry Green was pronounced dead by Dr. George W. Keel, penitentiary physician. A complete confession to the crime was made earlier in the day, apparently, so he was already, like, sentenced, and he was like, all right, all right, all right, I'll confess, you baptize me, I now have no sin. Winner! Hmm. Literal was first sentenced to die April 3rd, but he was granted a stay March 25th by Governor Myers Y. Cooper so that his wife and two children might visit him. Aww. Mrs. Literal and her sons live at Baker, Oregon, where the family moved several months ago. Can't say I blame her. Mm-hmm. The second stay was granted April 3rd to permit the Board of Clemency to investigate the case. The stay was until yesterday. Literal beat Green to death October 2nd, 1929, at the mouth of an abandoned mine near Kimberley in Athens County. The Slayer then robbed his victim of $700. Wow. Jeez. Coal miners rolling in it. So that was from the article. I have a little more because I, I looked into literal because his name is literal and that's literally the best thing ever. <laughs> it's,
0: I, I still can't get over that headline, literal smiles in death chair. That's, that's beautiful. It is. It is. Somebody so, give that reporter a freaking Pulitzer if it exists at this point in time. Uh,
1: 1930...
0: No, probably not.
1: I don't know. When was the Pulitzer created? I feel like it
0: was created more like like early 1900s.
1: Oh, well perhaps uh, like
0: sometime like maybe like right after like yellow journalism and everything was was really in vogue. So uh, you keep on telling me and I'm going to look it up.
1: So Literal was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Sanford Literal living in Snake Hollow near Nelsonville. He was born in Kentucky, never attended public schools except for 2 or 3 months when he was 6 years old. When he was 17, he was married to Hulda Kelty. He worked in mines and worked as a lumberman. Then he moved to Michigan, where he worked in various factories, and then came to Ohio, where he spent several years as a miner. Nine years ago, he and his family moved to Oregon, where he was employed as a lumberman and a washer in the gold mines. It was while he was coming back to visit with relatives that he planned the murder of Green. Now, this is some of what interested me so much about Mr. Literal. I couldn't really find much of the the Green Martyr, but holy fuck this guy. So, he had 12 deaths in the family. 11 of his children were dead. Oh, my God. And then two months before he was sentenced to die, a 12th child died. Jesus. While he was in prison. Oh, my God. So he had 14 kids, 12 of which died.
0: That is not a good ratio. That is not a a
1: good ratio.
0: Rough, rough uh, success
1: rate there. (laughs) And part of the reason that his wife, like he was given the stay for his wife to visit... She was suffering with a cancerous growth in the hospital in Oregon, and she was only expected to live a few months. Oh, my God. So uh, they did give him a stay so that she could come and see him one last time. Those poor surviving kids, though, They've, they've lost like almost
0: their entire gigantic family.
1: Yeah, well, if they even knew them, because it didn't really say, like, how old the kids were when they yeah. when they died, so a lot of them could have been, like, stillborn and stuff like True. that. True, yeah. Uh, but that information was actually from Find a Grave, so I just wanted to throw that out. James E. Literal. <laughs> James E. Literal. Literally, such a hard life, though. Literally. <laughs> wow. Maybe one of his kids died, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to beat this guy to death, fuck it. Like, because it really didn't say, like, did they even know each other beforehand? I couldn't find anything about that. The fact that the coal miner was
0: walking around with $700, though, like, for somebody... Like, that's a lot in 1920s. For somebody to be walking around with that much money, I don't think you would do that all the time. That feels like something that the killer had to have... Mr. Literal
1: had to have known prior. Yeah, well, the... They're both minors, so I'm assuming they knew each other like from work at some point, or maybe something. he knew that it was just payday, and if he caught him on the way, you know
0: from the i don't know the
1: even seven hundred dollars that's too much for a payday back then that's
0: true too, yeah, that's a lot I mean that's a ton, I mean, that you is see a ton like, of money. oh, somebody's making like sixty dollars a week or something, you know, like seven hundred dollars is a lot
1: yeah nineteen twenty nine seven hundred dollars yeah mm-hmm.
0: so oh uh nineteen seventeen it appears is when the Pulitzer started mm. so.
1: So that gentleman should have won a
0: Pulitzer. For that headline alone, yeah. Okay, so in the uh some, some of the newspapers have a, a section, it's almost like sort of a a little bit of a town hall where readers can write in and, you know, express their opinions. It's your standard, you know, like readers' forum type deal. But in the in the 1920s and 30s, it is amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, because people just spoke their opinion and, um, yeah, they, they say some interesting stuff. Uh, this won the, uh, the editorial writers t- titled Old Time Creed. So I, th- I thought that also drew my eye because it's this close to old timey crimey. <laughs> All right. You ready for this? Uh, as ready as I'm gonna be. No woman has any love or even respect for a man she can boss and bully. And no real woman will allow a- no, sorry. And no real man will allow a woman to boss him, no matter how much he may love her. I know there are a number of spineless creatures who let their women boss and order them around like trained animals and meekly submit to it, but these things are not men. They are simply something that are going around with pants on when they should be wearing pink undies. Nuff said. And it's signed, He-Man. Wow. Yeah.
1: (sighs) Do you want me to throw another letter at you? No, no, no. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and tell you a quick story. This is Boston, January 1st of 1892. Apparently, Boston citizens do not intend to let the palm for thief catching be held undisputed by the residents of outlying towns and cities. This was made evident yesterday afternoon when a citizen saw a man leaving the house, number 53 Lowell Street, occupied by Mr. Friedman, carrying in his arms a bundle of clothing. The citizen gave chase. Being close-pressed, the thief ran into 9 Willard Street to the roof of a shed in the rear and jumped a distance of 25 feet to the ground. The shock caused a compound fracture of the right leg. An officer of the Joy Street Station was called. The man was removed to the Massachusetts General Hospital, and the clothing was recovered. So basically, a neighbor is walking by, sees a house being robbed, goes that shit's not yours, and chased his ass down.
0: Nice.
1: <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic. That is fantastic. I feel like we should do more of that again, <laughs> because this citizen, all he did was yell and run and cause somebody to break their leg. That's great. I think that's great. Impressive results for low effort. I mean, chasing and running and yelling. And
0: that broken leg? You don't expect that. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's what happens when you jump off a
1: roof, I guess.
0: So sometimes these letters in the newspapers, they would become almost like a conversation. It was kind of like Twitter in its own weird, very much slower way. And you would see letters addressing previous writers, sometimes a ton of them. Everybody got real pissed off at this one dude for saying that he could get any girl. And like people were like, you have an ego the size of, well, Manhattan. Um, in this case, this gentleman wrote something about rudolph valentino the uh film star of the day well not of that day because valentino was dead at that point point. and several people wrote in to be like how dare you besmirch the name the name of this dead man i never met
1: <laughs> that would get real defensive yeah
0: so there, this guy had a whole bunch of people in his mentions essentially and then he comes back with another reply I wish to apologize for my unfair statement regarding Valentino. I had momentarily forgotten that he was dead when I wrote my previous letter. I regretted it when I sent it in. Still, thousands of great men have died and had themselves talked about. He's basically saying, like,
1: <laughs> we, we can
0: say what we want. Just because he's dead doesn't mean anything.
1: All right, I got a, a longer one for you, but the uh, I made faces reading this. Okay. And so now you get to. <laughs> Wonderful surgery, period. Uh Uh, Uh-oh. Alright, Haydenville, Massachusetts. In this little town, surgery has apparently received a most significant addition to its power of mending the human body. There are but one or two cases on record in which a broken neck has been so treated as to not result in death. And yet, at Haydenville... A young man of 22 years, Michael Mayhar, is reported to have had a broken neck so successfully that after a confinement of three months, he is now walking about the village street. The case is as follows. Oh, Oh boy. Mayhar was thrown from a carriage and his neck was broken. Dr. Hubert H. Flagg of Northampton, who was passing at the time, saw the accident and jumping from his carriage, hastened to the young man's assistance. Life was apparently extinct. When the body was raised, the head fell backwards until it rested upon the back between the shoulders. Jesus! The doctor determined... The the doctor... Sorry, that is a terrible image, and that broke me. (laughs) The doctor, determined to disregard the maxim so universally applied in similar cases, make death as easy as possible, and to test a theory he had for many years held in spite of the history of such cases, as revealed in medical records, he immediately grasped the body firmly with his knees, and taking the head, gently but firmly between his hands, by a gradual movement slowly reset it in its former position. Respiration, which had ceased, slightly returned. Brandy was forced down the patient's throat. <laughs> of course. Maybe they should give him some heroin. The pulse rose from 18 to 36. Jesus.
0: They must have measured pulses differently back then, but I don't know. He was was pretty much almost dead, so 18 to 36 could be. His head
1: was on his back, so who knows? Oh, God, I don't like it. Moments were precious, and the nicest care necessary to keep the head in position.
0: Well, I mean, it was just flopping around back there a minute ago.
1: The patient was carried to his home, the doctor never for a moment releasing his hold upon the head. On arrival there, it was bandaged into position, and later an iron brace was applied, which would absolutely prevent a dislocation by hasty movement. For three months, young Mayhar has been watched, not only with the doctor's and a mother's tenderest care, but with close scientific interest, which became associated with the case. After eight weeks of confinement, the young man could slightly move his head, and a daily removal of the brace for a few hours was authorized. The patient is now moving about, the strained and broken parts in the neck becoming more firmly rebuilt each day. An absolute recovery is looked for, in which event the case would be without parallel in the annals of medicine. <sighs> <laughs>
0: You did this to yourself.
1: I did. <laughs> Just picture that though. Just Oh, I'm picturing. I'm picturing, trust me. I, it... This doctor jumps out of his carriage and he's like, "Oh my god, I've been waiting for this moment. I have an idea. Hold his body up. I got this." Holy fuck.
0: <laughs> and then like like somebody like resetting a dislocated shoulder or something, but it's the neck. Ah, she made the noise. She made the noise. It's been going in my head ever since this
1: started.
0: Right? And it's just like, just hold his head. Like,
1: all right on top of him. I got his head. Let's go. (laughs) Dump Brandy down his throat. He's not breathing. (laughs) Alcohol. It's amazing. Oh,
0: my God. For science, guys. For For science. science. All right. This is, uh, I'm pretty sure this law did not stay on the books but uh, it's called A Freak Law in New Mexico is Blow to Many Sports. New Mexico, a state long noted for conservatism and sanity in the matter of its legislation, appears to have succumbed at last to the machinations of the freak lawmaker. The new Anti-Gambling Act, which the Attorney General holds, prevents a baseball game for pennant, prize, or anything of value, appears to be in a class by itself. Not only baseball, but chess and checker tournaments where a trophy is at stake, and we assume also golf, come within the scope of this remarkable statute, which puts a ban on bridge and places penny ante in the category of serious offenses. So they were like, it's gambling if you can even win a, like a ribbon. Wow. <laughs> Getting hardcore there. Can't bet
1: on the best pie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you a quick little blurb about doctors and lawyers. Okay. Uh, The the case that this was from does not matter because it was boring. While cross-examining Dr. Warren, a New York counsel declared that doctors ought to be able to give an opinion of a disease without making mistakes. They make fewer mistakes than the lawyers, responded the physician. That is not so, said the counselor. But doctors' mistakes are buried six feet underground. A lawyer's are not. No, replied Warren but sometimes hung as many feet above the ground. Wow. (laughs) I thought that was most excellent. It made me giggle. (laughs) That is a good one.
0: (laughs) All right, I've got uh, a little bit of of crime here. Just one family that's having, one might say, a rough week. It's the uh, Vecchionis family. Uh, Youth punches girl, then has mother arrested. Oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun time here. Okay. Love's highway is proving a rocky road for the Vecchionis. Only last June, Joseph Vecchioni, 24, Hoboken, New Jersey, wooed and won the heart of Frida Becker, 20. Hoboken, and married her in spite of her parents' objections and threats. Their romance attracted attention because of the difference in their religions. Following their elopement, they were jailed on complaint of Frida's father, who subsequently dropped his objections. Frida embraced Joe's religion, and they are reportedly still cooing like dug, doves in a nest in Jersey City. Enough for Joe and Frida. Yesterday morning, James Vecchioni, 22, younger brother of Joseph, met his sweetheart, Anna Midlick, 19, Hoboken, at 8 a.m. while both were bound for their places of employment. Anna accused James of playing around with other girls. Losing his temper, James punched Anna's pretty face. Later in the recorder, in, in recorder Adolph Karsten's court, James was fined $20, which was paid by his mother. "'I'm guilty, Judge,' said James. "'I punched her in the jaw, but I still love her.'" Still later at home, Mrs. Vecchione, who was flat broke after paying the fine, advised James to hawk a wristwatch owned by Anna and give back the $20. "'When James refused, his mother became enraged,' he said, and stabbed him in the back with a carving knife. He had her arrested, charged.' With atrocious assault and battery, she was held on $500 bail. Her daughter-in-law Frida was last reported trying to raise the bail.
1: Wow. Like I said, rough week. Rough week for the Vecchionis. Wow. (laughs) All right. Well, let me tell you about a body. It was a fearful sight that William Lane, the driver of Cash's grocery wagon, saw at an early hour this morning. On the Musy Road in Cape Elizabeth, lying in the gutter, face down, and actually frozen in, was the dead body of Frank Dolly of Cape Elizabeth. Dolly had been into the city during the afternoon yesterday with a companion, and they had been drinking heavily. At about 8 o'clock last night, they were at Mr. Cash's store, both considerably under the influence of liquor, and they left together. The next that was known of them was when Dolly was found this morning. Coroner Dennis Tobin was notified, and he went over, viewed the remains, and removed them to the city. It is regarded as probable that the outcome by the liquor dolly fell by the wayside and froze to death. Mm. So this is just a reminder, guys, because winter is coming. If you are that drunk, please Uber.
0: Yes, absolutely. Remember that you're understanding of your actual body temperature goes away a little bit when you're completely, you know, intoxicated. Um, Also, was that the 1920s? Uh, This was
1: 1891. Oh, okay.
0: I was gonna say, like, froze to death is not a surprising outcome of that kind of case, but there was also in the 20s when um, alcohol was, of course, you know, prohibited by prohibition, In the United States, the government actually had um, some of the illicit hooch being made with horrifying substances that ended up uh, killing people.
1: Well, so this freeze-to-death thing was actually a recent problem in Russia, and Russia is smart. So they decided to make tents with heat along the way that people would stumble Mm. home and offer free vodka.
0: I think we should should qualify that statement. Russia is smart about drinking
1: (laughs) they are smart about drinking actually a lot of the russian people though do not agree with their leaders much like um i don't know america so i i don't i don't want to say like as a whole but like i thought that was a great idea so people love alcohol and they keep passing out and freezing to death so let's offer them more alcohol in a setting that is warm yeah yeah let's just keep them warm the problem is not the alcohol the
0: problem is the temperature
1: yes (laughs) Modern (laughs) problems require modern solutions. Indeed. So this is a little
0: blurb about a screen star of the day who has some specifics for uh, any man that she is to keep company with. Sacramento bachelors, if you have any fond hopes of wedding Constance Talmadge, pretty and vivacious screen star, you must not. And the rest, this list is in caps, by the way wear tan-buttoned shoes, eat spinach, carry an umbrella, Popeyes out, wear a beard, say, I'm feeling badly, wear a ring on your middle finger, or sing tenor. Wow. These are the seven deadly masculine sins, according to Miss Talmadge. Also, she says not only herself, but all up-to-date girls forswear men addicted to such habits. Fuck that. Beards are hot umbrellas you can't carry an umbrella just get wet just get wet
1: you know I, I kind of a, agree with the umbrella thing um just because of, of certain things that I do uh yeah just get wet <laughs> all right so this is uh the more
0: Constance has a few more things to say Christy is now uncomfortable <laughs> I'm having trouble reading the words I don't like men says Constance
1: <laughs> She's my kind of gal. Yeah. Now I know she doesn't want a beard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I
0: don't like most men. I never could marry a man who had any of the above habits. Of course, there are plenty of other things which might forever bar him from becoming my lawful protector, but those are the seven deadly sins. And I believe they are abhorred by most other girls, too. Constance, fair with the warmth of summer and ever aglow with happiness, is portraying a young... Oh, it's just about a... A movie that she's in. So yeah, the, that's uh, Constance Talmadge's. Uh, you can't wear tan button shoes. Can't wear, can't wear tan button shoes. Can't pussy. S- can't ever say I'm feeling badly. Toxic masculinity
1: works both ways. <laughs> it really does, and that was a thing back in the day. Like even even my dad's generation, like you don't say, like you're ever feeling sick or badly. Like you just don't do it. Mm-hmm. You internalize that shit. You stuff it down, deep, deep down. Yeah, you got to fill your dick with it. <laughs> that's, that's how you do it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you a quick what the fuck. Okay. St. Louis. A special from the, I can't read that. A special from Kansas says, John Delaney, a wealthy farmer of Donovan County, died last week. On the day of the funeral... His wife was taken ill, and in 24 hours, she also died. Oh, my goodness. Not done yet. oh Two sons in California were sent for and arrived in time for the funeral of the mother. Yesterday, both sons died, huh. apparently from the same disease. The supposed cause of death was moving into and sleeping in a new house. Oh, carbon monoxide, maybe? Something like that? I'm thinking so. There was definitely something in the house. Wow. Yeah. So first the guy dies and then the wife and then the sons come to bury the parents and also die. Stay in a hotel. Yes. <laughs> that would be my advice. If both of your parents mysteriously died, maybe After don't... After moving into a new house. Maybe don't sleep in that house. Maybe
0: not. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, this is an interesting one. Life, the grim comedian, today had restored a mother to a son after each had thought the other dead these 14 years. Tom Cowder, 22, had been arrested here on a moonshining charge. His mother, now Mrs. S.H. Myers of Portland, read an account of the arrest and came here to claim her son. She had been divorced from Tom's father 14 years ago, and the father led each to believe the other had died.
1: Wow. So she thought her son was dead and the son thought his mom was dead. Yep. Wow. And
0: they only found out because he got busted for moonshining.
1: Wow. All right. How about why Miss Pauline Cleveland was sent to an asylum? Regarding the placing of Miss Pauline C. Cleveland, cousin of his wife, in an asylum, Reverend Clendenden... Oh, boy. Whatever. Whatever says that he did not force her to go to the asylum. It was her own wish to go there. He said that the day before Christmas, he received a letter from Miss Cleveland dated from the asylum at Harrison, which contained words of a most friendly character. The letter closed with Mrs. Cleveland's sincere wishes to himself and his wife for a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Mrs. Clenenden, a daughter of Horace Greeley, says her cousin has long been subject to epileptic epileptic fits I can't fucking talk (laughs) and periods of insanity and it was only because of a physician's advice that she consented to placing her in an asylum for years she tried to avoid this although at great sacrifice and worry to herself hmm so this is how I read this a woman wrote to her cousin and her cousin's husband merry christmas and they're like that crazy bitch.
0: <laughs> She's back on her bullshit.
1: <laughs> exactly, because it was like she wrote them a nice Christmas card, and they put her in the asylum. But she wanted to go. So I am not sending any Christmas cards this year. <laughs> and that is why. And that is why. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Now uh, I'm going to give you a headline that you can, you can tell uh, why this this drew my attention. Wood babes, 193, hike it from Texas. All right, so that's Wood, W-O-O-D, babes. The babes in the wood have grown up. They were found exhausted and hungry by the roadside at Iselin, New Jersey, yesterday by a a motorcycle patrolman and said they had walked all the way from Texas, most of the time with empty stomachs. They identified themselves as Texas Jack Tyler, 93, and Ma Tyler, 69. Nice. Pa said he would have given up the long walk lots of times, but Ma kept him going. They are bound for Canada, where Ma, who is Scotch, believes she will find friends to help them. Tyler is a slight wiry little man with a keen sparkle in his eyes. He claims to have been a friend of Jesse James and to have been present when... Now, this has to be a typo. Somebody was drunk at the typewriter, I swear. Fark Ford... Go with it. (laughs) ...shot the notorious holdup man to death. Tyler was captured by Indians when he was four years old and escaped at the age of 14, he said. Three times the... I can't say it. Native Americans were about to kill him, but his life was saved by squaws, Texas Jack told Sunquist, They left the Texas Panhandle last New Year's Day, the old fellow obtaining work in kitchens of restaurants along the way. The Panhandle isn't like it was, he said. Those oil drillers have broken up the old ranches, and it's hard for an old man to make a living if he isn't strong enough for the heavy work around the oil wells. Oh, and I talked it over and decided we make to make a new start and here we are. And so a committee of people in the town collected for them $20 and 20 cents. But I just 93 years old and walked from Texas to New Jersey. I'm impressed. And they're still headed for Canada. Keep on trucking. And she's just like, well, I have you know,
1: there's people there. Maybe some of them know me. <laughs> They're supposedly nicer. Yeah. All right. A Princeton football player back from his wanderings. New York. This is 1892. The mystery surrounding the whereabouts of Ralph H. Warren, the Princeton college man, has been cleared up. The young man walked into his parents' residence this evening. His uncle, Frederick Crosby, refused to allow reporters to see him but said he told a somewhat incoherent story about his doings. When he left Fraser's house, he walked further than he intended, and the next thing he remembered was the intention of starting for Harper's Ferry. Then he found himself in Baltimore, where he stayed two days before coming home. His relatives, acting on the advice of a family physician, did not urge him to give any further particulars until he had rested and recuperated. So a college aged kid just fucking walked and kept walking. Just kept walking. Sometimes you got to go walk about, man. Sometimes you just got to just got to get out. I I think the pill kicked in and uh <laughs> he went on a two day bender and then was like, "Oh yeah, I'm a Princeton grad, so we're just not going to talk to reporters." It was just a a moment of uh lapse and oopsies.
0: I can't go into details doctors orders. Doctors orders. Mm-hmm. I've got an advertisement here. Uh, this is aimed uh, obviously at children. It's, a uh, Dolly Doolittle. Free! You can get a free doll. She is 15 inches tall. She walks, talks, and sleep sleeps. We call her Doolittle because you have to do so little to get her. We send her free together with rain cape and beaded bag for selling 20 needle books at 15 cents each. So you, a little child, sell books of needles I'm hoping sewing needles, <laughs> who knows? Heroin. <laughs> Heroin and you sell 20 of those at 15 cents each and you get yourself this lovely Dolly Doolittle. Uh, there's also other other advertisements that have it being like, uh, you sell perfume uh, is another thing they have. And uh, if memory serves, when I looked this up, it was about, that's about $50 today. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, so you have to get, like, $50 worth of, and $50 for a doll.
1: Dolly Doolittle. Dolly Doolittle. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell you something fucked up. All right, Belle's crime. The crime for which Bell suffered the death penalty was a dastardly one, no less than that of shooting his wife while standing behind her. So, I'm just going to give you the synopsis. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I read this. I was trying to actually find more about it to make it a tiny, but there was just simply not enough. So, basically, Belle was married to his second wife. She left him for basically beating the shit out of her. Makes sense for her to leave him. She goes and hires a constable to come with her to go back to the house and gather her things. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a smart
0: move. It's really, if you're in a situation like that, it's good to have somebody there to make sure that you can stay safe. Because that's the most dangerous time to leave. Exactly.
1: And so she goes there with her constable. Her soon-to-be ex-husband lets her in. He's being very, very nice. Offers them coffee or tea. The constable takes some, is sitting at the kitchen table. And Mrs. Bell is like, okay, well, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to pack my things. And he's like, okay, honey, go ahead. I understand. She goes upstairs. She has her things almost entirely packed. Uh. Mr. Bell goes, excuse me, sir, I'll be right back. Walks upstairs, walks right behind his wife and shoots her in the back of the head. Oh, man. She was so close. She was so close. And the constable was downstairs. Yeah. And the constable, like, runs upstairs and Mr. Bell is like, all right, I did it. Yeah, you can arrest me. I was like, what the actual fuck? I can't believe you couldn't find more on that. But there was... There he was,
0: must have pled guilty or something and just, you know, that then there's no trial and there's less really just information put out into the public.
1: Yeah, there was very little, like, pretty much all I found was a handful of articles that all said the same thing. Mm. You know how they like to just cut cut and paste pretty much. Yeah. Um. They did say that the previous wife was... um, Let me see, where was it? The murdered woman was of a comely appearance and was by nature kind and quiet. Her maiden name was Emma Locke. They were married in 1886. At the time of her death, she was 35. Belle was 59. She was his second wife, the first having secured a divorce after being shot and seriously (gasps) wounded in a quarrel with her husband.
0: Hmm, I think um this is one of those situations where if you uh if you go out and you go out into the world and you meet a bunch of people and um all of them are assholes, you're the asshole.
1: <laughs> this was seriously like if at first you don't succeed, try try again. Right? Oh my god, that <sighs> So his first wife survived and he just needed to make sure that second one didn't wow. All right, so this
0: is, uh, you know, around, around different holidays, and newspapers will have ads for gifts for people. Well, Mother's Day is coming. Not now, but I mean, eventually. But the newspaper had a, a, a lovely uh, suggestion for a gift an appropriate gift for Mother. Singing canaries. <laughs> yes, get her something that makes more noise and that she's going to have to take care of. Absolutely.
1: That is not what mothers want. That is
0: not. Uh, and it just goes on, describes them $3 and 49 cents, by the way, all gold metal rollers and choppers. Now there is a little bonus here. Money cheerfully refunded within 15 days, if not entirely satisfactory. Oh boy. I bet they had lines out the door. God, <laughs> my, my children got me this. I hate them and I hate you. Um, so yes, that just really cracked me up. Although Man. I've given you two advertisements here, and I pretty much most of my stuff was from the same year. The heroin was 1900, um, but a lot most of these were 1927. And so, the thing is, it's hard to find advertisements in the paper in 1927 in New York City that are not for fur coats or furniture. Those are the only two things they were selling. They're very popular. Yes, <laughs> that's all you can buy is fur coats and furniture. Every single page has furniture sets. Uh, It's bonkers. All right. What do you got for me? I have a poem. You have a,
1: you have a poem. I do. I'm the poem. (laughs) All right. Give it to me. I'm so excited. So this is from Oklahoma, July of 1933. This was a verse left after a robbery. So, the robber was quite
0: cute. And left a poem.
1: He did. So, John Chapman had 39 chickens. Now he has three, a rooster and two hens. Pinned to the hen house door when the farmer discovered his loss was the following note. I steal from the rich and I steal from the poor. I will leave the old rooster... To make me some more.
0: Oh wow! That yeah, that's clever. That's clever. <laughs> kind of like that guy. <laughs> All right. Um, I have actually more bird stuff. believe it in here. Um, you were you were on a thing, huh? Well, it just I, I I found two different bird things and I put them side by side. But this is several things in a a section of the newspaper in one particular newspaper. They had called, uh, it was a feature called Freaks in the News. Oh, good. So, you know, that got my attention. All right, so Sue's for Canary's Love, Syracuse, Syracuse, New York. Mrs. Anna Mallett has filed suit in the Supreme Court, asking $500 damages for the alienation of the affections of her pet canary from Mrs. Martha, Taylor, her neighbor. The bird escaped from its cage and flew to the Taylor
1: home. Oddly. I have something very similar. Oh,
0: okay. It's not
1: about a bird, though. This is uh, Norristown. William H. McFadden, 74, Philadelphia, was awarded a verdict of $800 tonight by a jury before Judge J. Ambler Williams against William C. F. Schultz, 57. 37? Hard to tell. Something Uh, seven. (laughs) But a garage owner. So McFadden charged Schultz with alienating the affections of his wife, Martha McFadden. The trial started Tuesday and was resumed today. McFadden, among other things, charged his alleged rival with presenting his wife with an electric reducing machine, a calculator, a mop, dust brush, free repairs to her automobile, and performing odd jobs about the McFadden home. The McFadden's were married in 1924. The husband was selling shrubbery when the courtship began. He charged that they lived happily until Schultz began to visit the house in the early part of 1930. Then the romance was shattered, according to McFadden. Schultz denied all allegations. He admitted buying the reducing machine, but said Mrs. McFadden actually paid him for it. He denied having visited the home during the absence of the husband. Mrs. Schultz also testified for the defense. She blamed all the family troubles on the husband and declared he frequently called her vile names and did considerable swearing. (laughs) The jury was out for an hour and a half, and then they gave McFadden a $2,275 verdict last March. So basically, this giant douche of a man says that his wife is in love with the guy that fixes her car. The wife and the car guy are both like, no, that's not what's happening here. And the judge is like, give him money. That'll just, yeah. I mean, the man of the house, obviously he's right. Clearly, yes. How dare you, as a woman, get a calculator? I actually don't think
0: it was a calculator a reducing machine a reducing machine remember back in the like 1900s and such uh, reduce like reducing used to mean weight loss mm so i bet it was one of those weird machines that like jiggles your fat or something oh like my that gosh. and it's supposed to to weigh you down an electric reducing machine i mean like I, there's an article here that has um t- it's talking about them in the 1950s uh, at slenderizing salons. Oh, yep. maybe
1: it was that.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, that's interesting. That's, uh, this article has, I, I need to see what the full name of it is because it, it said vibrating and I need to know the rest. <laughs>
1: oh, well,
0: why is it different in the preview? All right, anyhow, well, it's a vibrating machine. We'll just call it that because this article is not going to give it to me. All right, uh, so I have a, another freak in the news. This is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It cost the city of Tulsa $200 to mail a letter for Mrs. S.A. Crosby. The woman tried to mail it in two different fire boxes, calling out the fire department each time. The second time, she gave it to Fire Chief Adler to mail for her. So she's somehow confusing. I don't know what old timey fire boxes look like versus mail boxes, but somehow she's calling the fire department instead of mailing her mail.
1: Close enough. Sure. I guess. I have a sad story. I almost don't want to tell you. But I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Eight year old Helen Tabaka is dead. No more will she look forward to an automobile ride from Wilkesbury as she has for the past four summers to spend a two week vacation in Reading. No more will eight year old Tommy Beaver run into his neighbor's home to greet the dark eyed, black haired miss on her arrival. Howie. I I'm just I'm not gonna read the whole thing. Uh. So basically, Helen and Tommy were like really great friends. They're both eight. And Tommy wanted to show off for Aww. Helen, and so he decided to play big man, is how the newspaper put it. And he went inside to grab some matches and some papers to like smoke. And he lit the papers and like threw them up in the air. And one of them landed on Helen's dress. Mm. And went up. Because it's summer. It was like a, a light dress. And the dress just immediately burst into flames. Tommy tried his best to put her out. He yelled and got his father, who, who did get it put out with a blanket. And then they uh, took her to the hospital. So she was alive for 30 hours. Oh, God. She had burns everywhere on her body except for her face and the bottoms of her feet. Most of them third degree. Oh. So that is um, that is awful, awful, awful. This is why kids should not play with matches. Yeah. Um, her parents did make it to her bedside and she left behind six sisters and two brothers. Oh my. Yeah,
0: it's, uh, there's a lot of those stories of child tragedies in the, in the old timey newspapers. That's something that, um, doesn't, doesn't come through all the time, but how horrifying it was just all the little kids getting shot by other little kids. And lots of that. Lots of, lots of that. Lots of that. So many children. People were just leaving guns like on the freaking coffee table or something.
1: I, it's ridiculous. I, I saw one. I didn't put it in here because it made me sad, but it was an eight year old. He was with his six year old sister and they were apparently babysitting like his 18 month old cousin. And he grabs a shotgun and he goes, I want to see something. And shot. And killed the 18-month-old. Jesus. Narrowly missing his sister. Oh, my God. So he almost got them both. But, like, in my head, it's, like, mind-blowing to me. But, like, I was raised with guns, but my dad was always like, this is what guns do. And I I don't know if back there they are like, just don't touch it. And so kids obviously are going to. I don't know if it was, like, that thing or if it was like, I don't know what this is. I want to do it. It it seems loud! <laughs> loud is fun. It makes a boom.
0: Oh, yeah, it's, it's it's truly horrifying. It's one of those things that you're like you see it and you're like, oh, another one. It, well, it still happens today, and every oh, time sure, I yeah. see it, it's
1: just like, oh no. Yeah.
0: Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back up here uh, with a little story of a burglar's welcome. This I believe is my only one from like the 1860s. And also England. On Saturday morning, between two and three o'clock, a daring burglary was committed at Mr. Lewis Hasluck's watchmaker, Tottenham Court Road. The thieves entered the shop by means of a chimney connected with the back of the building adjoining a mews. Mr. Hasluck was aroused by the breaking of some glass and the bark of a dog kept on the premises and made his appearance just in time to capture the hindermost of the thieves as he was about to escape up by the chimney. Catching hold of the fellow's leg, Mr. Hasluck dragged him down, forced him back into the shop, and after taking from him a valuable clock, which constituted his blunder and giving plunder, rather, and giving him a good thrashing, handed him over to the police. Lovely. So, so they tried to escape out the chimney. Wrong way. You're supposed
1: to come down the chimney.
0: Yeah, right? I love that he, he gave him a good thrashing. That's, that's important. I'm going to take this clock back and then I'm going to thrash.
1: <laughs> yes, that is what we do here. I have a recipe for you. Ooh, okay. That I might eat. I'm not sure. You tell me if you would eat this. Jellied cheese salad from Uh, 1933. Starting there, I'm a no. So, uh, I'm not going to give you proportions. I don't really care to get into it that much. But you're going to start with a good Roquefort cheese. And then cream cheese. Heavy cream, salt, gelatin, cold water, whipped cream, and pecans, chopped. <laughs> <laughs> Blend the Roquefort and cream cheese and moisten with heavy cream. Soften the gelatin in cold water and melt over hot water. Add gelatin to the cheese mixture. Fold in the whipped cream and chopped nuts. Pour into a small size round mold. Chill until firm. Unmold. Garnish with halves of pineapple and sprigs of parsley or watercress. Sounds kind of like a cheese ball, like a Jello cheese
0: ball. Yeah, I'm wondering how the what the Jello does with the texture. I'm I'm curious about
1: that. You know, I, because the cheese ball would be the cream cheese. Yeah, with the roquefort. So like that part, I'm like okay, I'm okay with that. And we're putting in some like. Heavy cream, that's fine. And nuts, that's fine. Wasn't there, was some whipped cream in there too? Whipped cream? Yeah. Now we're getting on the sweeter side. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. (laughs) But it didn't say sweetened whipped cream. It just said cream whipped. So, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. If you made it, I would try it. I wouldn't make
0: it myself, but if you made it, I would try it.
1: I am I don't know that I want to Roquefort jello <laughs>
0: um on then I'll, I'll give a recipe too and then I'll just do I think one more that I good because I
1: really have to pee
0: okay all right so recipe and then another thing okay. Now, this is actually related to uh, the the old Tiny Crimey bonus episode over on the Patreon. I forgot to tell Amber this recipe, and she said, oh, well, I have a recipe for the newspaper, so we'll just exchange recipes. Um, So this is cod mold, which the recipe assures us is a delight to young and old alike. Bet it is. You will need one and a half pounds cooked cod, one dessert spoonful anchovy sauce, half pint thick white sauce. Half ounce gelatin and a little cress or finely chopped lettuce. Flake the fish and mix with anchovy and white sauce. Prepare a fish jelly. Can't forget those two words together. By dissolving the gelatin in half a pint of stock in which the fish was cooked. Rinse out a mold with cold water. Put in the jelly to a depth of half an inch and decorate with cress. When, when set, coat aside. Jesus. When set, coat side of mold with jelly. Put in the fish mixture and allow to get quite cold. Turn out and serve with salad or thin bread and butter alone. Um, So, yes, this is a a fish cod mold and we get the words fish jelly, which is just lovely. Yummy.
1: Yummy. I don't really understand the gelatin thing because my like I think yours is in the 30s too, right? Yes. your um, yep. Mine would have been
0: in the thirties because I found it in the same, that same year of, of my uh, old tiny crimey. Same, same. That's how I knew
1: what year mine was. <laughs> Cause Christy and I both did a tiny in the same year Yeah, without having discussed it. That was not uh, in any discussion that we had. We had no
0: pre-plan to do that. She just happened to do 1933 and so did I. <laughs> Frankly, I plan nothing and just kind of di- whatever. Whatever happens. So, all right, one more little newspaper article, and then we will uh, head out. So, uh, I, th- I believe this one is from the 1800s as well, but I don't have the date marked. For the benefit of those who do a good deal of setting up and fellows who won't go home till morning, we state that a comet may be seen with the naked eye any clear night in the, nor- in the northern part of the heavens at from 11 to 12 o'clock and from that time till daylight or until the morning star rises. For more than 10 years, astronomers have predicted that this comet would make its appearance during the months of August and September and say it is the most wonderful comet ever beheld. A collision with the Earth is predicted. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of the article. We're not going to give any more information. (laughs) I love that.
1: It's so pretty. It'll be so beautiful. You should go watch the sky. Oh, it's going to hit us. We're all going to die.
0: (laughs) absolutely beautiful beautiful
1: Pulitzer so. shit right there
0: <laughs> all right uh i do have uh, a new patron that we need to say hello to i just need to get into my gmail <laughs>
1: there it is okay
0: right, right. on the do <laughs> yeah it was so, welcome to the Patreon, Julie Faust. Welcome, Julie. Welcome, welcome. And you too can become a patron, help support the show, and also get a ton of bonus material. We're like in the 140s, I think, with tinies and posts in general. Just general bonus
1: material. Like- I don't even fucking know what day it is, guys. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I like. I was honestly shocked at how long I've been doing the podcast, because it doesn't feel like it's been that long. And I'm like, wow, we've done that many episodes? No wonder I can't remember anything. I know, right? Or we have cases where we're like, this sounds really familiar. I cannot tell you how many fucking times I've read an article and I'm like, we did a case on this, right? Or did we not? (laughs) Oh my God. It sounds just like a case... But I can't remember what I would have called my show notes when I saved it to even <laughs> check. Oh my god. How long ago was that? Time is relative. I have no idea.
0: It's it's an unfortunate thing that you get to a point where all murders are the same. <laughs>
1: In a way they are. In a way they are. You have a murderer
0: and a victim. Pretty much, yeah. There's, there's, at, at its basis the level. The devil is
1: in the details. <laughs>
0: it really is. I think we've learned that. If nothing else from this podcast, we have learned that the devil is truly in the details. I love the weird little freaking details that I can find. That is when I'm always the happiest when I'm researching a case.
1: Yeah, That's true, though. Like, jurors set a record because as soon as they were picked, they had to go to the ball game. What? <laughs> what?
0: Maybe that, that must be why they were picked so fast because they had to. You had to they help had on a bus. We had tickets. We got to go. Get on the go.
1: bus, guys. All right, you twelve are in to the ball game.
0: <laughs> all right, um, that's pretty much all we got. Uh, I'm not going to guarantee we'll be here next week because I have still good days and bad days sometimes. Um, on Friday, Thursday, some day recently, a day, I just I was having like stabbing pains in my hip. Like, worse than usual and much more, like, localized. And at around noon, I was just like, I'm done. I'm going to sleep. And I took a four-hour nap. Glorious nap. Glorious nap. It was absolutely glorious. Jackson was just like, he was, I was in the, the recliner, and he was like, you were gone. He was like, I was, like, cooking my lunch and <laughs> walking right past you. He's like, you were out. I was like, I think I really just needed it. So, like, it's hard for me to plan um, and say for certain just because I don't know. But, um, I mean, if nothing else. We love you. We do love you. And I still have a couple of newspaper articles we didn't hit up. So, we could always just do more old tiny newspapers. I don't know if people like them. I hope they do.
1: (laughs) I don't have any more. So, either way, you're
0: making me work. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, Amber's still got to do stuff. Damn it. (gasps) All right. So, on that note, um, don't. Play with matches. Play with matches. Yeah, don't play with matches. And do uh, get inside when you're drunk. (laughs) Yes. So, and definitely don't combine the drunk with
1: the matches, Amber. (laughs) Hey, hey, there has been some glory that has come from that. We still talk about it. Yeah. Not in a good light, by any means. I did light one of our friends on fire. Just a little bit. (laughs) It happens sometimes. You know what? It's a weird world and weird stuff happens, especially when you're drinking with Amber. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, old-timey gang, we will see you when we see ya. And bye. Bye. I don't really have sources. <laughs> I was like,
1: sources? Newspapers.com, source?
0: <laughs> Chris Garcia. Our sources were newspapers.com. I'm so stoned. I'm <laughs> going to piss my pants. Go piss. Go pee. Go pee. I'm like, That's so fucking stoned. I it's almost wrecked your chair. really hard to keep it together here. <laughs> and we're still recording. It won't stop.